Welcome to ContenderCast, a global leadership and consumer industries entrepreneurship podcast centered on shining a light on bright ideas. And now, here's your host, Justin Hahnemann. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for downloading. It's Justin Hahnemann on the ContenderCast. We're shining a light on bright ideas. And today, I just want to say full stop, you are going to love the podcast today because on the podcast we have Dr. Ron Friedman. He has an incredible new book out called Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success. I can't even wait to dive in. Um, and I promise this is going to be a, a great um, investment of your time today. Ron, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Dustin. Dude, I had, I, as I mentioned before we hit record, I had so much fun like learning more about you and your background. Um, you have another book you had written prior, which we're going to talk about, The best, best Places to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. I saw it almost five stars like on Amazon, tons and tons of reviews. Um, I do want to at least sit on that in a few moments. And um, you're, you're incredible, right? You're an award-winning psychologist. Um, you've done tons of work in this space. I, I thought this is really interesting. You're the founder of Ignite80, a learning and development company, which is cool, right? That translates research and neuroscience, human physiology, and behavioral economics into practical strategies to help working professionals become healthier, happier, and more productive. I mean, that's incredible. Ron, I mean, it's, what a cool <laughs> space to be in. This. I hope she's tuning into this. If not, I'm going to forward this. <laughs> it's awesome. I read that and I'm like, okay, this is going to be so cool. Everyone needs that right now, especially as we're opening back up post-COVID. People are coming back to the office. People are getting back on the road. Um, lots of implications of that. So let's do this. Um, Ron, I had a great time, again, researching your background, but you haven't always been in this space. I guess you've you, you, you've been around the space, but just share with us your career path and, and what that looks like. Sure. So I... Um was not a great student. <laughs> I don't know if that's that's a nice contrast to to uh, the introduction you just gave. Right. Not a great high school student, but um, kind of hit my hit, hit my stride in college. And while in college, I volunteered for a city councilman in New York City, and uh, that city councilman ran for Congress. I became his chief of staff at the age of twenty two. Uh, did that for four years, and then you know it was it kind of became predictable. I think a lot of people end up switching when their job gets boring. Too many people wait too long. I kind of realized it right away. I uh, then decided I was going to go into psychology. And a part of it was because I was so interested in the polling that we were doing in, in politics that I wanted to understand why people were making the choices they were making. So in other words, we, we in polling, we're, we research why is it who are you voting for and why, right? Sure. We don't know how people those decisions. So I was curious about that. Ended up going to the University of Rochester, where I studied with the researchers who Dan Pink wrote about in his now classic book, Drive. Oh, wow. And, got it. Uh, so after I got my degree, I uh, started teaching, quickly realized that's not for me. So I decided <laughs> I'm going to go back into the thing that got me into everything, which is polling, right? So I joined um, a polling team in New York City, uh, did some research for Obama. This was back in 2008 and oh, wow. a bunch of congressional candidates around the country. And after that, I joined some advertising agencies. So I was like the Don Draper of the place. So my job <laughs> wow, was to figure out that. what is it that customers I saw that think. On LinkedIn, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what is it that customers think and how do you change their views? Sure. And in that experience of working in the corporate world, that's when I, it dawned on me, like all of this stuff that I had learned in graduate school about how people become more motivated, creative, and productive were being ignored by most organizations. And it wasn't because 
leaders weren't interested in that research, it's because if you're a CEO, you're busy. You don't have time to read academic journal articles. And that's what led me to write my first book, which was called The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. And in it, I took over a thousand academic studies, translated them into plain English. So that regardless if you're just someone who's starting out or you're leading a big organization, you have access to the latest research. But there was something missing in that book. And what was missing- What was missing? Yeah. Even within the best organizations, there's a range of performance levels, right? Some people are are top performers, others are not. And so in this book, Decoding Greatness, I was curious about what is it that top performers do differently and how can we apply their strategies to becoming better at anything we do? Interesting. Okay. So this one focused on the top performers in the organization. Precisely. And what I did was to figure it out was I I looked at the biographies of just the the stellar performers in all kinds of fields. So people like people ranging from entrepreneurs to artists to inventors. And what I found was that the stories that were told about success are wrong. So basically, we're told two big stories, right? These are stories that we've all heard throughout our lives. The first story is that greatness comes from talent. This is the idea that you, we all have certain inner strengths and sure. the key to finding your greatness is to identify what your talent is and then find a field that allows your talent to shine. The second big story is that greatness comes from practice. This is the idea that if you just practice long enough, you have the right practice regimen and you have enough discipline, eventually you will become great. That's the Gladwell uh, argument, right? Absolutely. The 10,000 hours. Absolutely. But there's a third story. And the third story is one that people don't often talk about. But let me tell you, amongst entrepreneurs, they know it. They know this story. If you're listening <laughs> to this, chances are you know this, right? And But most people don't know this third story. And that third story is reverse engineering. And what that means is finding the best examples in your field and then working backward to figure out how they did it so that you can identify some key learnings and then apply that to create something completely new. And yeah, that approach, you know, it's, it's one that people in Silicon Valley have known about for generations. There's a very long history of coders deconstructing winning products to learn how they're made. It's how we got the personal computer and laptops and the iPhone. But the story that people haven't heard is that reverse engineering also explains how writers like Stephen King and Malcolm Gladwell learned their craft and how Pablo Picasso and Claude Monet became groundbreaking artists and even how Judd Apatow became one of the most successful comedy minds of our generation. So studying the best works in a field and then working backward to figure out how they were made, that turns out to be far more common than anyone has realized. Wow, interesting. And um, I, I do think it's groundbreaking and different. And that's why I really, I was excited. To, to unpack this with you today. Um, first, though, rewinding just a little bit, how did you know something was missing from the first book? Like, how did you know it when it, the day it was published or later? Like, how did you know, just from an author's perspective, when did you, know, you realize funny. that? <laughs> so, I mentioned that there are a thousand studies in there, right? Totally. So, like, it's already way too long. <laughs> so, <laughs> thousand studies. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Let me lot. tell you. So, so, this is what I've learned as a, as, an, as a writer and as an author is that people don't want an encyclopedia. They want like an elevator pitch. And this is unfortunately why if you are a reader of business books, you probably have found them to be formulaic where there's one idea and then they ram it down your throat over the course of 200 pages said a million different ways with a million different stories. I hate those types of business books. I really try to cram in a ton and my attention span is low and I'm kind of happy about that because that forces me <laughs> to combine a ton of stories. I think it's a strength. I think it is my books are, are business business books for people who hate business books. So they're really very story <laughs> love driven, it. Love very it. practical. Right. Uh, and it would have been impossible for me to cover 
everything. And um, also I have to tell you about reverse engineering is this is how I have succeeded at anything. So it's how I learned how to write academic journal articles. It's how I learned how to write a book proposal. It's how I learned how to create presentation decks when I'm presenting to clients. Everything that I have done successfully has come from reverse engineering. Now, it's not like somebody sat me down and taught me how to do this. It's something I discovered on my own. And as I was writing Decoding Greatness, when I, when I would share the ideas with other entrepreneurs or with um, creative professionals, invariably, the reaction I would get is, man, I've been doing that all my life, but I've never heard about how to do it. I've never learned it. It's just something I stumbled on. So in this book, what I tried to do was take all the best practices that people who reverse engineer success use and then just teach them to the average reader so that they can start applying it to their work. Got it. Okay. So we've all heard of the phrase reverse engineering. I don't know that I've ever thought of it from my own like success perspective. I, I'm like many and listening are probably like, yeah, well, you know, you have talent, you have practice, you have training, you have education, whatever. Um, and one of the things you wrote was to reverse engineer is to look beyond what is evident on the surface and to find a hidden structure. So help us understand how this works and how you somewhat discovered this in, in your thinking. Yeah. So first of all, I should say that there are a wide variety of strategies for reverse engineering. It all depends on what field you're in. And all of these strategies involve looking for clues that reveal how an object was created. So the the approach is going to be different from industry to industry, but I'll give you some examples just to give you a taste. So in the world of writing, nonfiction authors will go right to the bibliography at the end of the book when they get a book in the mail. And it's because that tells them the sources that went into creating the work. And I don't know, know, if you're not an author, you probably never even looked at the bibliography because it's not something you're inherently (laughs) interested in. But let me tell you, I mean, if you're an author, that's where you go because it's kind of like the way I describe it in the book. It's like eating at a fancy restaurant and then rating the chef's kitchen for the ingredients. Speaking of chefs, what chefs will do is they'll often order dishes to go so that they can spread sauces out on a white plate and parse out the ingredients. Photographers look for clues that are hidden in images. So if you're a novice photographer, you're probably looking at the object, the thing that's central to the photo. That's what I do because I'm a novice. But experts (laughs) do something different. They Look for clues like uh, the length of the shadows and the reflection in the eye of the person in the image, because all of that reveals the time of day that the sh- photo was taken and the light source and how, uh, where, where it was placed and how strong it was. Wow. So the critical thing in all of these is just not to passively enjoy experiences, but to continuously think, how is this constructed? What can I learn from this? And how do I apply this to what I'm working on? And this is an approach that you can use with websites. You can use this with emails. You can do this with memos, presentations. The key is, as you're starting out, is to, this is the, the strategy that I tell everybody is you know, the first thing you want to do is you want to start a collection. Okay. And what I mean by that is, you know, we think about collections, we think about physical objects. We think about wine or stamps or totally. shoes. That is too narrow. That definition is way too narrow. People who are uh, top performers have collections of ideas that they've come across that they want to better understand. So Andy Warhol, for example, he would collect artwork. Julia Childs would collect cookbooks. David Bowie would collect records. I know a bunch of designers who collect 
logos. They've got them all on a Google Doc or, or they use Pinterest. Um, uh, copywriters will collect headlines. If you're a marketer and you're not collecting websites, you should be because it's an easy thing to do. And then when it's time for you to create your own website, you're not staring at a blank page. You have some inspiration to draw from. Plus, you can analyze those items in your collection by comparing them against things that didn't make your collection. So in other words, you're comparing now the ordinary against the extraordinary, and you're identifying the ingredients that makes uh, extraordinary work succeed. That analytical approach is how you develop your greatness. You don't have to rely on talent. You don't have to rely on practice. You just need an analytical approach that helps you better understand why things are resonating. Wow. Amazing. Um, And how did you personally, you know, you you mentioned that with your career and with writing and and actually doing some of your work that you discovered this. Did you already think about this whole idea or was it something you got into and then said, you know, I think this is like reverse engineering. You know what I mean? Which was first? Yeah. So for me, it was out of necessity. So I uh, describe in the book an experience that I had when I was in graduate school. I was in graduate school studying social psychology, and I had been an experimenter for a while, meaning that I was someone who collected data on, um, you know, different theories and looked to see what the evidence showed. But then I needed to write it up in order for it to become a published work. And that's how you get tenure when you're in academics. That's the reward system. So you got to publish papers. And so I had to publish my first paper. I had no idea how to do it. There was a lot of suffering that entailed uh, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of wasted hours at cafes staring at uh, a blank screen. (laughs) And then one day I thought, hey, you know what? I'm not going to try to write anymore. I'm just going to study the best writer in the field and see what I can learn by just rereading his papers over and over. So I took this author whose work I really admired, and then I, and I, I read each paragraph, one after the other, for each paper. And what I discovered was that there was a pattern in his papers. So every one of his papers would start off with some kind of surprising fact. Then he would raise a question, a hypothetical question. Uh, and then he would go into presenting all of the research that he had done on it, and then he presented his thesis. So that was his approach. That was his pattern. Um, for me, I, after reading that, I, re- I realized, okay, I can do the same thing. All I need to do is find some kind of interesting fact, totally. then raise an interesting question, show what the research has shown, and then present my thesis. And then that gave me a template that I could use. That's how I learned to write academic journal articles. And that approach of templatizing great examples is one that can be applied to websites, to emails. All you need to do is get some great examples like we talked about, and then figure out what's happening in the first paragraph or the first panel, what's happening in the second panel. And then now you can create a template for yourself that you can um, build off of and evolve in, in, in a new way to your field or to your expertise, but at least you're not starting by staring at a blank screen. Interesting. Yeah. You talk about finding the hidden patterns in a book, website, TED Talk. You mentioned Spotify. Um, yeah. And now for you, do you, how do you find those patterns or do you see them pretty consistently now that you're thinking about it? Like what, how does that evolve and how do you coach others? Uh, to yeah. Be looking so, for it, those? so in decoding greatness, I've got a whole bunch of strategies for you to use. And one of them, I'll just give you an example is Please. to quantify features. And that sounds a little scary to people. So let me just explain what that means. So 
what I'm referring to when I say quantify features is to put a number on how often something is happening within a given work. So it, I'll give you the example of the TED Talk we've read about. So what I did was I took the most popular TED Talk of all time. It's one by delivered by Sir Ken Robinson. And uh, what I did was I analyzed how often he does certain things over the over the course of the talk, and I compared it to other non number one ranking <laughs> right, head talk right. of all time to see the frequency and see what's different. So what you notice when you do that analysis is that how many facts does this guy give over the course of his entire TED talk? One, one fact. I would never have guessed that. If I was writing a TED talk, I would imagine I need to like blast you with a ton of facts in order to be persuasive. This guy gives me one, one, uh, one fact in the totality of his presentation. Wow. Though, is he's telling a lot of jokes. So he's got a 20 minute, I think an 18 minute talk. He's giving me 40 jokes over 18 minutes oh and my gosh. a ton of stories, a ton of anecdotes. Right. A lot of them are very moving. So now I learned something by doing that analysis. It's not giving, it's not plastering people with facts that makes his talk go viral. It's, uh, it's the stories and it's the fact that he's funny. Now that approach is useful because now you know what makes a TED talk popular, or at least one in his case, but it's not necessarily a formula that you can replicate because what if you're not funny or what if right. your topic doesn't allow you right. to be funny? Not everybody can pull that off. That's right. Exactly. And so the key is to find somebody else's work that resonates with you, that is applicable to your topic, that you can then learn from. And then it doesn't end there. You can also combine different elements from different speakers. And that's how creativity happens is when we mix up uh, different examples that stand out, that resonate with us, recombining them in a new way and providing a remix that's our own novel approach to uh, a, a proven formula. Wow. That turns out to be way more effective than just starting <laughs> from scratch. One of the things you say is uh, taking risks is overrated. And, when, and, you, and you have something else we should do. Share with us your thoughts on that. Oh, man, there's, there's, a, there's a lot <laughs> of different strategies here about risk-taking. So one of the things I talk about, we're often told that a ton of risks, right? That's the way, unless right. you're stretching, you're not going to grow. But what you learn by looking at the most successful businesses is that they're actually very strategic in how they take their risks. And how they do it is by actually taking the risk-taking out of the risk, so, or rather, taking the risk out of the risk taking, meaning that they are, even if they fail, the price of failure is actually quite low. And here's how they do: they do it up through a, a few different strategies. One of them is using a pseudonym. So, using a pseudonym just means using a different name for the the brand, and they do it via sub branding or white labeling. And I, I provide all kinds of examples about the impact of, of using pseudonyms. But, you know, one of the stories has to do with J.K. Rowling. So J.K. Rowling was obviously the author of Harry Potter, very successful. But when she was done with Harry Potter, she wanted to try her hand at crime fiction. And mm. she didn't know if it would work out. So she wrote under a different name, a pseudonym. She wrote under Robert Galbraith. And that book ended up having some pretty good critical reception. And it was only after that she got that confirmation that she was on the right path. That's when she announced that she was the name behind, she was the behind person who the author. Actually, wow. Correct. <laughs> now, for all we know, there are like five other pseudonyms that she tried before right. she told us she was Robert Galbraith, but she wanted to get that feedback first before she, she planted her flag. That's an approach that comedians use as well. When they go out into small clubs, they will often test materials at tiny, tiny clubs before presenting it at their Netflix special, again, because they're minimizing the risk. And we can all use that approach either by, particularly entrepreneurs, by doing sub-branding 
And, you know, the uh, Banana Republic does this where they've got a whole bunch of different brands. Totally. Uh, they actually Banana Republic is is owned by Gap and Gap owns Athleta and Gap also owns a few other yeah. brands that have since been shuttered because they weren't successful. And people don't realize yeah. that. They've got a number in there. Yeah. And, you know, this is what you see on Amazon now where you go on Amazon and you want to buy a toaster and there's like 500 to- <laughs> companies you never heard of. Right. Well, some of them are owned by some some well-known brands, but they don't want to cannibalize what they're right. selling at stores. No so they're using sub-branding. And it's just a great approach for testing a new product without um, without jeopardizing your brand equity. One of the other things you mentioned earlier and uh, I, that I wrote down before we got on the um, Zoom today was you, you said, let me tell you how to write like Malcolm Gladwell, develop dishes like David Chang and generate ideas like Don Draper. Help me with that. Is this truly the watching for patterns in each and then reverse engineering into making it your own? Well, there are different um, answers to different parts of that question, but uh, (laughs) I'll talk about the Gladwell part first. So Gladwell uh, is a really interesting story because what I did in researching how he came to become a great writer is that number one, he started by reverse engineering his idol. So he looked at William F. Buckley, the conservative pundit, and he was just enamored with his work and he acknowledged that. And so he tried to figure out what what uh, William F. Buckley was doing and tried to write like that. And that's how he learned to write. He didn't retain that mimicry. He evolved, but that was the beginning of the story. So he started through reverse engineering. It's ironic because this is the guy who popularized 10,000 hours of practice, but he started with reverse engineering and, and somehow that didn't make his book. Uh, but, <laughs> right. <laughs> Because I think, and to this point, I think there is a stigma around reverse engineering. I think a lot of people assume that, oh, if I'm if I'm doing this, then I'm doing something wrong because I'm copying somebody else's work. But this is why I think it's so fascinating to have the research. So I, I looked into what happens when we copy other people's work. And it turns out when we copy other people's work, we end up becoming more creative, not less. Mm, that sounds crazy, right? That's like how does copying make you more creative? So let me tell you about this study. So there's research out of University of Tokyo, creativity researchers brought in amateur artists into the lab and they divided them into two groups. One group was told to just create original artwork over the course of three days. So three days in a row, you guys go have at it, come up with original works. The second group was also told to create original works on the first day, but on the second day, they were asked to copy the work of an established artist. And then on the third day, they were asked to continue with original works. Okay? okay. Now, here's where the study gets interesting. So then on the third day, after everyone's done with their art uh, projects, they bring in an established artist and they have them rate which of the two groups is more original. And what they found was that the group that had paused to copy on day two was vastly more original than the group that would, had just created original works for three days straight. And it wasn't by copying the style of art of the person they had copied on day two. They went off into actions, and it's because the act of copying someone else's work forces you to compare your instinctive decisions against the um, against the choices of a master. So that process of like thinking, okay, what what would Dustin do? And then here's how Apple did it. That forces you to consider new ideas that you would have completely ignored had you not gone through that process. So rather than viewing reverse engineering or copying as problematic, we actually need to start uh, appreciating the fact that it is a necessary skill for improving our work and elevating our, our creativity. 
Interesting. If I take that to the brand world where I spend most of my day, um, Mm -hmm. I mean, is that an opportunity almost mimic another product in your innovation cycle? On products, it's uh, I think there's stuff that we can learn. So I, I view reverse engineering as an analytical process that helps you learn faster and build your skills. Sure. I want to differentiate that from what a lot of companies do on Amazon and in other countries, which is just just t- take copy. somebody else's product <laughs> and then sell it at a lower price. Right. That's not that's not what I'm referring to here, right? Because that's no. that's a criminal act. <laughs> that yeah, what I'm talking but, about here is for educational purposes. Totally understand what, what's working and then apply it in a new way. So the other thing, hold on, but, on that topic though. So yeah. let me give you an example. So with sure. large consumer products companies, like they have innovation teams, right? And so mm-hmm. as they're innovating new products, then I mean, why not inter- interrupt and be part of that? In- that process, you know, to deconstruct how others have done similar products or, or even non-similar products and then come back to the innovation process. And hundred percent. Does that make 100%. sense? Like leveraging that, yeah. getting some new thinking in your process. Absolutely. And in fact, this is what has made the car manufacturing industry so successful over the last decade. So people don't know this, but when a new car comes out from Audi, uh, then Mercedes takes it apart, part by part, and looks to see how it was constructed. Every company that in the in the automotive industry does this, and in fact, it's become so common practice that they have like a Netflix style <laughs> right. approach to this. Oh you probably read about this. So, A2 Mac One is the name of the company, and they sell subscriptions. And if you uh, if you enroll, what you will receive is the actual plans for creating any car you want along with the exact parts required. They even have 3D <laughs> wow. uh, glasses or whatever they're called, 3D imaging that allows you to examine the part from the comfort of your own home, or you can check it out and have it mailed to you and then mail it back. It's remarkable. And you know, every every company in the industry is a member of this um, of this subscription service. <laughs> and now you would think that everyone would be upset, but no, they all recognize that this is valuable. They learn from each other and it's part of why cars have retained their value for so much longer than they had uh, a, a decade ago. It's right. because they've all become more reliable because they're constantly learning from one another. Wow. Um, a little bit of a different direction here. You've written two books. How, like, how Share with our audience like the time it takes to put something like your newest book, Decoding Greatness, together. That's a good question. Uh, it took me three years. Oh but, my uh, gosh. <laughs> Is that, is that so a lot guys, I'm um, no. So you know, for those listening, you know, we talked to entrepreneurs and they t- they share the the time it takes to figure out like you know t- how to make X Y Z product or how to launch a new service or launch a new brand. Yeah. And, I mean, it just takes time, right? And you did a lot of research. Yeah, I mean, look. So it is. I'm, I'm happy to talk through the the publishing process, but it is um, interesting because first you need to sell the thing. Because I mean, unless <laughs> you're self, unless you're self, unless right. you're self publishing, you right? got to get someone so, bought into this idea that we're going to yeah, talk about. Yeah, so that, that takes the form of a book proposal as opposed right. to like totally. fiction, where in fiction they actually have to provide the finished book in order to sell it. <laughs> oh so in nonfiction, gosh. you just pitch it, right? And then you've got to write it, and you're evolving it, and you're getting feedback from your like early testers. It's just like developing a product, right? right. You don't put it out into the world like you know. See, I had a team of like twenty people reading and giving me comments as I was right. writing it. Uh, and then there's like the whole marketing phase. I mean, it is, uh, it's involved. 
Yeah, no doubt. It's three years, everybody. <laughs> um, and yeah, you can self-publish a much shorter period of time, but I mean, it's a different, yeah. uh, different scale. Um, this yeah. has been really, really cool. Uh, Ron, I'm guessing you're, you know, things are opening up. You're going to start hitting the speaking circuit again, um, which is pretty exciting, I know, for, for uh, to get the message out. So share with our audience. Well, actually, before we go, uh, yeah. share with our audience, like one or two of the biggest things that you've learned um, that you would, that are applicable. Think about our audience. You know, we've got a lot of entrepreneurs listening. We've got a lot of leaders, leaders of, of leaders of people, um, you know, what would be some of the, your bottom line, you know, one, two, three points you would give to them uh, as takeaways today? Oh man, there's, there's so, <laughs> there's much. so many, I mean, honestly, like this book is filled with actionable you gotta, tips. I know you got to pick two or three. <laughs> okay. So I would say one of them is that I, I hope that what people take away from this book is that they stop thinking that greatness is for someone else because they don't have the talent or they don't have 10 years to invest in getting great because this is the approach for learning faster on anything, any industry that you're going into or working in now. If you want to understand why your competitors are succeeding or why people who have come before you have succeeded, this is an analytical approach that will help you extract the best of what's working so that you can combine elements and create something new. The other thing that I hope is, is an important takeaway for people is that creativity doesn't happen by working in isolation. It's by totally. combining ideas that are winning in different fields in a new way. And I'll give you an example of this. Yeah, uh, in the story of uh, Barack Obama, I don't know if you remember this, Dustin, but not a lot of people know this. Barack Obama, when he first entered politics, was not successful. He actually got trounced his first race for Congress. And the problem, if you can believe it, was that he was a terrible speaker. He really? had been a, yeah, wow. he had been a law school professor. And as a law school professor, he was used to lecturing students. And voters did not appreciate being lectured to. And they let him know at the polls. And uh, so he, he, for a long time, he thought about leaving politics. He was kind of broke. He had no career path ahead of him uh, that he uh, could, could identify. And then one of his one of the people on his campaign team said, why don't you go into the churches and see what pastors are doing to connect with their audiences? And what he found was that they were using repetition. They were doing right, storytelling, exactly. yep. the deliberate pause. They were quoting the Bible. He comes back a year later, his speaking style is completely transformed and the rest is history. And, and what I think that story illustrates so well is that Obama didn't go and find his talent. He didn't go practice for 10,000 hours. He figured out what was working in a different field and incorporated it into his own. And that's an approach that anyone can use, regardless of what industry you're in. You can now go into other fields and incorporate the best of what they're doing into your field. Wow. And I hope that's that that message advice. just makes you feel like you, you have license to go enjoy your guilty pleasure. Because <laughs> right. whatever that is, if you enjoy watching um, you know, Top Chef or you enjoy um, listening to Iranian music, whatever the case is, you have license to go and do that because there are elements in those fields that you can apply to your field to, to create something that's original and valuable to people that you would not have gotten had you just stayed in your bunker and just focused on your industry. Totally. Wow. That's great advice. I think that's a perfect point to end on. Um, share with our audience where they can find you, find your book, find your former book, 
uh, and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> so the best place to learn more about this book, Decoding Greatness, is go to decodinggreatnessbook.com because if you go on that website, you'll have the opportunity for getting the book, but also get a free course on reverse engineering oh, that comes cool. with the book just for getting it. Uh, and you can get it at any bookstore. We'll just, you just let us know you got it and we'll get you the course. Uh, you can also find the book on Amazon and other places like that. It's called Decoding Greatness. And the first book is called The Best Place to Work. And it is, it's good. It's a good book. <laughs> I don't know what else to tell <laughs> you. It's, it's a good book. You should read it. That's great. Um, and you can find me online at uh, ronfriedmanphd.com or at my company's website, ignite80.com. That's awesome. Hey, man, it's been so great having you here today. Such great content. Um, we, we talked about your, your first book and um, having you back on down the road. We'd love to unpack that or what is going to become your next. So I appreciate you making the time today and look forward to staying in touch. Sounds great, Dustin. I appreciate it. The Contender Cast is sponsored by Henderson Shapiro Peck and powered by Contender Brands. You can download additional Contender Cast episodes directly via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, iHeartMedia, YouTube, and other preferred podcast platforms. If you would like to be a guest on the ContenderCast, connect with us at ContenderCast.com. This is Brian Benson reminding you that every winner started as a contender.